You're listening to a live recorded teaching of the Sunday Gathering at Proclamation Church in Nashville, Tennessee. We hope that this teaching reminds you of the love that Jesus has for you. To find out more about Proclamation Church or to support the mission and vision of our ministry, visit us at proclamationtn.com. Paul writes, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. I went up according to a revelation and presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those recognized as leaders. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was compelled, was, but not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus in order to enslave us. But we did not give up and submit to these people for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. Now, from those recognized as important, what they once were makes no difference to me. God doesn't show favoritism. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter was for the circumcised. Since the one at work in Peter for an apostleship to the circumcised was also at work in me for the Gentiles. When James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, recognized as pillars, acknowledged the grace that had been given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only that we would remember the poor, which I made every effort to do. But when Cephas, again, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those who came from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, If you, who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews, who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between the Jews and the Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him, and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone of Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made a part of this dwelling, 
where God lives by his spirit. We're in the, the beginning stages of a sermon series uh, called Flourish. Uh, Pastor Derek indicated it was going to take several months to get through this, so I will try to keep mine short. Um, I'll be under Derek time uh, if, if things go according to plan. Uh, but I got to thinking about the word flourish. Uh, I try to have a, a little bit of a garden every year. It's not much, and we have a lot of moles, so it really isn't much after they get through figuring out what they're going to do. Um, so my garden rarely flourishes. Sometimes we get a lot of jalapeno peppers and we don't get a lot of anything else. So, uh, but I enjoy the challenge and all of that kind of stuff. But I was thinking about the word flourish because it is this, kind of the title of this series. And it really goes along with John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief only comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, but I've come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. And I was thinking about it. I looked it up in my uh, trusty, long-time, world-renowned uh, MacBook computer dictionary. Uh, and it said, flourish is to grow or develop in a healthy or vigorous way, especially as the result of a particularly favorable environment. And what that said to me about our church is this, and I think this is going to be on the screen. When we talk about flourishing we mean this local body of Christ is a particularly favorable environment for the healthy, vigorous growth of God's people. That's what it means to flourish. It's not an abstract. It's a very practical idea. In the first, uh, first or second uh, series, sermon in this series, Pastor Derek talked about our vision is a multiracial, multi-ethnic church. And so I'm the guy, believe this or don't, who is tasked to preach about racism today. Yeah, so he went out of town. Uh, so um, I do want to be careful because uh, as an aging white dude, uh, I can say things that sound like I mean something else. Uh, not intentionally, obviously, but sometimes I can. But for us to pursue the vision of a multiracial, multi-ethnic church that provides a particularly favorable environment for the healthy, vigorous growth of God's people, we must constantly be aware of and repent from this tier one issue that would be like a spiritual herbicide on the garden of God, and that is racism. Today I'm going to use three words interchangeably. Uh, I, I'm not an academic, but I know enough about academics that there's a specific academic use of racism that isn't typical of popular use of racism. Uh, but for today's purposes, I'm going to use the words prejudice, racism, and bigotry as synonyms. Okay, So if I use any one of those words, I'm talking about the same thing. Each one of these shows up in a multitude of ways. Suspicion toward those who aren't like you or me in one way or another. Superiority toward those who look differently than you or I do, who struggle to speak certain words correctly, like me just now, who don't speak a language that we think they should speak because they're living down the street from us. Most of the people in a majority culture are blinded to the full extent of racial issues, and we've talked before and I've admitted that I know I'm part of the majority culture. For most Americans, that is white people like me. We're the majority culture and have been since our ancestors relocated to Native Americans, subjugated African slaves and their descendants, and abused Chinese immigrant workers in the 19th and 20th century American West. 
but there is a solution, and the solution is the gospel. Dr. John Perkins is a pastor, theologian, and a civil rights giant who many of you probably have not heard of, still lives in Mississippi. And he said, there's no institution on earth more equipped or more capable of bringing transformation to the cause of reconciliation than the church. The reality is when it comes to racism and racial issues, the church should lead the way and often, instead of being the engine, we're the caboose. Pastor Tony Evans said, the reason why we haven't solved the racial divide in America after hundreds of years is because people apart from God are trying to invent unity while people who belong to God are not living out the unity that we already possess. So I want to look at three particular things from the Galatians passage, look at some points of application, then we'll wrap up and, uh, and you'll be free to, uh, to go. First thing I want you to notice in Galatians chapter 2 is freedom in the gospel. This is verses 1 to 5. Uh, Paul makes it clear that he went to Jerusalem to make sure that the gospel that he had been preaching for some 14 years that was inclusive of the Gentiles, and he wasn't making the Gentiles go get circumcised in order to be saved or in order to be able to walk with God, he went back to Jerusalem to check with the elders of the church in Jerusalem and make sure that what he knew to be true was actually what was true, that the Gentiles were receivers of the same gospel. And he recognized that while he was there, that his, his uh, travel mate, Titus, who himself was a Greek, a Gentile, was not compelled in any way to be circumcised. So no one that they were interacting with said, oh, well, we're glad you brought Titus because we have a collection of sharp rocks over here and we'll go ahead and take care of this business while you guys are in town. They didn't say that, and Paul brings out the point that they didn't say that, and he says, in spite of this, there are some who have come, and he calls them false brothers, and I think that's pretty important. He says, they've infiltrated our ranks in order to enslave us because they are compelling these Gentile believers to be circumcised, elsewise they are not actually saved. So what was happening, this wasn't all of the Jewish believers, this were some very, very committed Jewish believers who were also very, very committed to the Old Testament law. And they could not grasp that faith in Jesus Christ brings freedom from sin and the law. They thought it only brought freedom from sin, and the expression of your faith in Christ was that you, were, you would keep the law. And Paul was preaching, no, you don't have to worry about that because the law only brings you to salvation. It doesn't save you, and so you're not subject to it after you come to faith in Christ. But these guys are lying about this. And I want you to notice specifically what he says, that this is a gospel issue. The very last phrase of verse 5, he says, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you. It's Paul who brings up the subject of human division. Titus, being a Greek, a Gentile, had not been compelled. So from this, we understand that racism is a gospel issue. It's not just a social issue. It's not just a societal issue. It's not just a North issue or a South issue. It's not just a black, white, or brown issue. It is a gospel issue because racism brings apart the gospel. It breaks apart the gospel. The gospel frees. Racism binds. The gospel ensures that white Americans don't have to attend synagogue to know the Jews' Messiah. 
The gospel ensures that black Americans don't have to learn white evangelical theology to know Christ. The gospel ensures that immigrants don't have to be proficient in English to know Christ. The gospel ensures that no dominant culture, parentheses, Western culture, close parentheses, gets to determine the truth of God. There is freedom in the gospel. Well, the second thing we see in verses 6 to 10 is the universality of the gospel. The gospel is for everyone, Jew, Gentile, black, white, brown, light, dark, rich, poor, those with a past and those with a story. Just consider who's here. Paul is a Jew, a former Pharisee, now the apostle to the Gentiles. Barnabas, as far as we know, is a Jewish Christian. Titus, a Gentile Christian. The leaders in Jerusalem were Jewish Christians, and the subject of the meeting were the, the, the current and the future Gentile Christians. Amos Young, who's a, uh, an Asian theologian, uh, writes in his book on uh, evangelical theology, God enabled a people, any people, to know salvation through their cultural and tribal racial customs and traditions. In other words, a Gentile need not become a Jew to be saved, as Galatians teaches. Racism, however, cleaves the gospel. It doesn't bring unity, it brings division. That's why I call this sermon the bad math of racism. It doesn't do what God does in the gospel. It doesn't bring things together. It renders things apart or attempts to keep them apart. Zilpha Elaw, and I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing either one of those names right, was born around 1790 in Pennsylvania, a free African-American woman. After coming to Christ in a barn stall while milking a cow, true story, an encounter so vivid she said even the cow was aware of the presence of God. She eventually entered a preaching ministry that took her to the Middle Atlantic and Northeast states and internationally to New England. She strove to emphasize nothing in her words but Christ crucified. In one sermon she said, The Almighty accounts not the black races of man either in the order of nature or spiritual capacity as inferior to the white. For he bestows his Holy Spirit on and dwells in them as readily as the persons of whiter complexion. Oh, that men would outgrow their, listen to this, nursery prejudices and learn that God made of one blood all the nations of men that dwell on the face of the earth. Preaching there from Acts 17, 26. How, how spiritually backward is it to judge a person's closeness to God by looking at their skin color? How weirdly wrong is it to assume a person's spiritual condition by whether, you know, if they fell face up in the snow, you wouldn't be able to find them until it melted because they're so white. Or they look like a caramel macchiato come to life. I mean, that's what I wish I looked like, to be honest with you. I look like ceiling paint. I just don't, you know, I don't have <laughs> anything really good going on in the melanin department. I mean, if you just think about how you order at a coffee shop, you know you want black coffee or you want, some with a splash of cream, or you want white milk, or you want, I mean, all of those skin tones represented are beautiful, absolutely beautiful. And Zilpha is absolutely right here. God's presence, the presence of God's spirit does not rest more heavily or lightly based on the lightness or darkness of a person's skin. Racism cleaves the gospel. And number three, and we're going to identify with Peter a little bit here, some of us, I think, our temptation 
to comfort instead of the gospel. Now, if you remember back to Acts chapter 10, and this is pretty outstanding, Peter had a vision, and in this vision, a sheet came down from heaven. And in the, on this sheet were all kind of animals that Peter didn't eat because he was a Jew. And so the, the sheet went up and down, up and down, up and down two or three times. And, uh, and then the voice of God told Peter, get up and kill and eat. And Peter's like, uh-uh, I'm not eating that stuff. I, that stuff is unclean. I'm not eating any of it. Um, I'd be like, where's that bacon? Uh, but Peter's like, nope, not, not eating any of this. And God said, what God has called clean, you should not call unclean. Then the next thing that happens in that chapter is the Gentile Cornelius sends men, based on an angelic vision, to find Peter to come and tell him about the gospel. And that's how Peter got his eyes opened that the gospel was also for the Gentiles. So Peter can no longer unview, or unview, Peter can no longer view as unclean the Gentiles. But what happened when he, uh, when those Judaizers, those who said that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved, came, uh, Peter changed his tune. So Peter had been, hey, it's okay. I will, uh, I'll eat with the Gentiles. Peter had been in 1950s America South, I will go in and I will eat with my black brothers and sisters. But when the Klan came to town, Peter was like, no, y'all use the colored entrance. That's what Peter was doing here. He would not eat with the Gentiles when these super spiritual Jewish Christians came down from Jerusalem. Well, that created, obviously, a problem, and so Paul called him out. I just, I just love that Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in his own book that he called Peter out in front of all these other leaders. I withstood him to the face. I told him he was wrong in front of all these other people face to face. Now, why was this so significant? I mean, really, Peter, couldn't he just go to lunch with anybody when he wanted to and it didn't have to be a big deal, it didn't have to be a show? The reality is this probably has to do with their church service. So Peter wouldn't share the Lord's table with Gentiles when these guys came to town. Leon Morris, who's an Australian theologian, was an Australian theologian, now he's in heaven, uh, writes in his commentary on Galatians, it may be that the observance of Holy Communion was involved in this, for it seems that often in the early church it was celebrated at a meal shared by all believers. Then in a footnote to another commentary, he says this, uh, the writer says this, the observance of food laws could split a community in two and make it impossible for Jews and Gentiles to sit down together at the same table to share a meal. Because the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, was celebrated in the context of a common meal, it would then be impossible to hold this solemn remembrance together. The very unity and identity of the community of the body of Christ were at stake. Racism cleaves. Peter didn't want to lose his influence among the Judaizers who sought to combine the law and grace. Uh, he feared their judgment. It was the old Peter that had been around the fire denying Jesus, raising his spectral head in front of all these Judaizers, and that is sometimes our temptation as well. I will, like cards on the table here, the, the time in my life that bigotry and prejudice comes out the most is when I am driving. 
Now, first of all, I think there's something we can all agree on. That is people from Tennessee don't know how to drive. I think we can all agree on that. Uh, but I have a really, really bad tendency. First of all, I think I'm the best driver in the world. Uh, please do not ask my wife for a confirmation on that because she definitely does not think I'm the best driver in the world. Uh, but I think I'm a really good driver. And what I think I'm really, really good at is picking out people who absolutely do not know how to drive and should never leave their driveway without getting a ticket. There are just a lot of really bad drivers out there on the road. My big problem is, and this is where the prejudice and the bigotry comes in, is I almost always think I know what that driver looks like from like, you know, 300 yards back. And that's where it comes out. And I can't tell you how many times I've passed somebody, and I don't give them the evil eye. I'm not like, I don't want to get shot. But I do try to like steal a glance and see if I'm right. And I'm almost always wrong. I mean, almost, I'm almost never right about who I think is driving that car. But that's where my prejudice comes out in full force is when I'm driving. So I think I should probably let Sonia drive more often than I should just read a book or something when we're going somewhere. <laughs> to protect my sanctification, that's what that's all about. <laughs> so I think, honestly, we're, we're probably at the point in this church, Sonia and I were talking about this, and she's like, you know, no Klansman's going to come to this church. They're going to come in here and see that this is a body of Christ that's diverse and loves Jesus, and they're going to get weirded out, and they would leave unless God was really like bringing conviction upon them for salvation. So it's not so much that anybody in here thinks that everybody else is a racist. That's not why we need to hear this. Why we need to hear this is so we can be proactive in addressing what racism does in churches, what racism does in society. So here's four things I think we need to keep in mind. Love sacrificially as God does. You can't hate people you love. It's a lot harder to judge people you love. It's a lot harder to think badly of people that you love. Love sacrificially as God does. Racism elevates self based on skin color. It's superiority bred from an innate genetic trait over which the racist has zero control or can take any credit. It's a pride that turns MLK back on himself, insisting that the color of skin is all that matters. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, however, John writes this, Dear friends, let us love one another, because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Love sacrificially as God does, and you will head racism off the pass. Second, listen intently to those of different races. Listen to those of different races. The Bible says be slow to, uh, slow to speak and be swift to hear. Focus on listening, hear to understand. Cultivate proximity. In the aftermath of, the, of Michael Brown being killed in Ferguson uh, several years ago and the, the protests and everything that was subsequent to that, I determined at that time that I needed to have conversations with black men who were in my sphere of, of relationships because I didn't have any black friends to speak of. Uh, acquaintances, yes, coworkers, yes, but not like black friends. And so I went to lunch with three or four men, uh, some from work and some from church, and just asked them questions about how's it different to be you than to be me? How, what's different about your life than my life? What was it like to grow up black in the South? 
And I can promise you that all of those stories, all of their stories, were vastly different than my own experience. And I would have accepted my experience was just normal. Um, I may have told this story before, but I got pulled over for speeding um, a couple, three years ago. And um, it was a speed trap thing where it was a, a road where the speed limit is like 30 miles an hour. And I'm quite sure I was exceeding that somewhat. Um, and so they had a speed trap set up and the, the police officer had his motorcycle in the shadows. And so I was like right on him before I even knew he was there. So he pulled me over and gave me a warning, and I was super nice, and he gave me a warning, and I went on my way. Well, not even a week later, guess what? Same thing, same dude. I'm telling you, I don't learn. And, um, and so he pulled me over again, and, um, and by pull over, I mean he's just like this. He's already standing on the side of the road. And um, so he, he was like, I said, uh, yeah, I was out here last week, and you, you pulled me over. And, he, and this God's honest truth right here. He said, I didn't give you a ticket, did I? And I told them, my black friends, that, and they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, and I know why. Not stupid, but there is a difference. I mean, you don't know many people who have pled the Fifth Amendment at a, tra at a traffic stop where a policeman pulls them over for speeding and didn't get in trouble for doing it. Because when the policeman asked, how fast were you going? I'm like, I'm afraid I'm going to have to plead the Fifth Amendment and not incriminate myself. And he just stared at me and then was like, okay, well, you have a nice day. I can get away with that. And I realized that a lot of people can't. And I learned from that period of time because I listened to what my peers who weren't white were telling me. So the third thing is to learn. To learn humbly from other races, ethnicities, and cultures than your own. The great fabulist Aesop said this, it's easy to be brave from a safe distance. It's quite easy to project pride if you've always been on top, but we can look at the life and ministry of Jesus to see what real humility looks like. Strive to get close to people who are not like you for the purpose of learning from them. And then number four, loathe racism as a cancer in society and families and in the body of Christ. Racism creates a different gospel. It morphs the good news of Jesus into a message of privilege, hate, separation, and superiority. We should loathe racism and excise it as quickly and as thoroughly as if someone denied the Trinity, denied the divinity of Christ, or denied the virgin birth. It is that important. The great theologian from American history, Frederick Douglass, once commented on the type of Christianity that was prevalent in his day, and this is quoted in Carl Ellis's book, Free at Last, The Gospel and the African-American Experience. And Frederick Douglass said this, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one, 
for calling the religion of this land Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. Frederick Douglass. Racism is bad math. It breaks the body of Christ into disparate parts. Rather than a body with members, it separates those members like an axe-wielding serial killer. We can't have white Christianity, black Christianity, brown Christianity, and in the words of Amos Young, shades of yellow Christianity. Further, we can't have American Christianity, Philippine Christianity, Kenyan Christianity, Honduran Christianity, Malaysian Christianity, German Christianity, and so on and so forth, to where every country and every culture claims to be the only version of Christianity. We are not families. We are a family. We're not flocks, but a flock. We're not seeds, but a seed. Galatians 3.16, Now promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. As a result, there's no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, since you all are one in Jesus Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, singular, according to the promise. Then summarizing the passage that Natalie read this morning, the unity of the body, the oneness of the body of Christ. Paul writes that Jesus has made both groups one, that he's creating one new man from two, that he might reconcile both to God in one body, that we both have access through one spirit. We are members of God's household, singular, built on one foundation with one cornerstone, that is Jesus. We are a holy temple, singular, built together for God's dwelling, singular in the Spirit. After the great verse in John 10, 10, where we learn about flourishing, Jesus moves almost immediately into a couple of sections that have to do with him being the good shepherd. He says the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and the good shepherd knows his sheep. And then he says, I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Ephesians 4, Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And then the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went out to the garden to pray, and as Peter, James, and John were struggling to stay awake and the rest of the disciples were nowhere to be found, Jesus prayed for them and for us. I pray not only for these, but also those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I'm in them and you're in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you loved me. We don't need the bad math of racism in the church. We need the good math of the gospel, that we're all one in Jesus. Let's pray. I'm going to ask as we're, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if our prayer team would come forward. Uh, they will be available to you after the service has concluded. If you have any prayer need at all, you can come to any one of them. 
they will both keep it confident and pray for you now if you wish or later if you wish, but they are available to you. And um, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and when I'm done, you will be dismissed. Father, we're so grateful for uh, this morning and for your word and for the truth of the gospel as we, uh, as we strive to live it out. And I pray, Father, that we would love, that we would love with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, those who don't look like us, those who don't talk like us, those who aren't from where we're from, and that racism would never, prejudice would never, uh, bigotry would never gain a foothold uh, in this body of Christ. Father, we're grateful for your love to us and the power of your Spirit in conforming us into the image of Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks. You are dismissed.